0: Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Public Health Disrupted with me, Zand van Tulleken
1: And me, Rochelle Burgess Zand is a doctor, writer and TV presenter and I'm a community health psychologist and Associate Professor at the UCL Institute for Global Health
0: Now this podcast is about public health but more importantly it's about the systems that need disrupting to make public health better to join us each month as we challenge the status quo of the public health field asking what needs to change why and how to get there
1: in today's episode we're going to be exploring race and health how does racism impact people's health and how big is this problem we're three years on from george floyd's murder which launched a wave of global protests under the banner never again this of course has not been the case We're also three years since the COVID pandemic began, which really highlighted the longstanding racial health inequalities in the UK and beyond. So in this episode, we'll be exploring the systemic challenges faced by people of color and the complex relationship between racism, health equity, and efforts for social justice.
0: Helping us to understand all this are today's experts, Professor Delan Devakumar and Dr. Halima Begin. So let's tell you a bit about them, shall we? Delan Devakumar is a professor of global child health and an honorary consultant in public health. He's co-director of the UCL Center for the Health of Women, Children and Adolescents. He's chair of the International Health Group, which is a special interest group of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health. Delan was lead for the Lancet series on racism, xenophobia, discrimination and health. And the Lancet, if you're not familiar with it, is one of the most high profile medical journals in the world. And as if all that wasn't enough to qualify, Dellen to help us unpack the implications of racial inequality, he also leads the Envisioning Environmental Equity Project on Climate Change and Racial Justice and produces much creative content of his own, podcasts, newsletters. He's founder and director of Race and Health. And we'll let you know where to find out more about all his work at the end of the show.
1: And we're also delighted to have Dr. Halima Begum joining us today all the way from Kenya also bringing bucket loads of insight and experience of her own to this important conversation. Halima was recently appointed the new CEO of ActionAid, an international development charity working with women and girls living in poverty all over the world. Until she starts at ActionAid later in 2023, Halima remains CEO of the Runnymede Trust, the United Kingdom's leading race equality think tank. As many of our listeners know, during her time at Runnymede, the Trust has produced an important body of research on public health in the context of race, including its work late last year with Greenpeace examining the impact of the climate emergency on minoritized communities. Halima has also played a significant role during the COVID pandemic, working with the government to secure vaccination priority for minoritized communities across the UK. She sits on the board of the NHS Race and Health Observatory, and she has also held senior positions in the UK Department for International Development, the British Council and the Lego Foundation. Welcome to Delan and Halima, and thank you both so much for being here.
0: Delan, I want to start with you. Can you give us an idea of the scale of the problem and the ways in which racism affects people's health?
2: Thank you for inviting me today. So, I suppose we think about racism in many different ways and there are different versions of racism so in our conceptual model we we go from the individual person up to the kind of structural core uh, causes of racism so if we think about it at an individual level and that's i guess what most people think about so interpersonal racisms so acts of physical violence verbal violence that can directly affect people and uh, you mentioned George Floyd in the introduction. Um, Famous in the UK, the Stephen Lawrence murder, going back to my childhood, was, you know, very important part of growing up here in the UK. Remembering what happened at that time, and that I, I guess those kinds of racism, you can see obviously how it can affect someone's health. Um, but there are other ways that are a little bit more complicated that are uh, beneath the surface, be. So. There's this idea of chronic stress or allostatic load, weathering is another term. And this is where uh, acts of racism can affect the person. It can affect how the body functions. So we see this in chronic levels of stress hormones increase. You get these changes in the neuroendocrine system, so changes in hormonal levels, changes in brain function and, and structure even. And this can result in an increase in non-communicable disease uh, and and some of the reasons why people from minoritized groups die earlier than others. And that can affect people at different parts of their, their life as well. So there are sensitive periods, particularly in childhood, that can affect you a long time later as well. And even... Um, can affect the next generation so we see these studies of increased stress due to racism in pregnant women and we see these changes um, happening in the children who are born increased rates of preterm birth increased uh, low birth weight in the babies who are born we can also think about it at a structural level Um, in terms of the institutions that people go to the health system in particular we see these barriers to access for minoritized groups, we see uh, reduced quality of care, sometimes even simple issues around language and not being able to understand the health system. And then environmental forms of racism, uh, indigenous communities living in polluted parts of the world, mining industries affecting the the quality of the food, water systems in, in those communities. And you know, in London, uh, we talk about air pollution. Some of the, the poorest parts of London, the Minoritized people live in, have worse air, and are breathing in different air than other groups in London. And then we have this more kind of core structural um, causes the political systems, the legal systems that have um, perpetuated racism. Most famously, the apartheid system in South Africa that divided people by uh, racial groups. Racism means different things and it can act at all those different levels and can affect. Uh, individuals and populations in those different ways.
0: Even within the medical profession, once you're in the clinic, where you think that you're dealing with objective science and, and measurement, you're still dealing with medical textbooks that only have pictures of white skin in, and then the data on which treatments are based are very often not on very diverse populations. Drug development, even in places where you think you're dealing with objective science, race plays into the the care you receive?
2: There are ways in which the whole health system can be structured in a racist way. This can be built into the kinds of algorithms that we have. So if we think about kidney disease, there are these race corrections for someone's um, kidney function, uh, where black people, there's a, a different correction that's added, which leads to poorer outcomes for those people we see uh, black people having access to uh dialysis at different rates than than white people and this happens in the uk and in, in the us in particular um and, and part of this is based on this false idea of uh races being different biologically and having different physiology that you need these race corrections when, when actually that's not true and and what this does is it leads to poorer health for those communities um And and this is a way in which it's just built into the way the clinical work functions. So it's not the individual person. It's not the individual doctor doing something. Sometimes it's just automated within the lab reports as well. Sometimes the labs apply that race correction automatically. It varies in how it works. So sometimes that the raw results are given, but sometimes within the laboratory results that's already incorporated into someone's uh, kidney function.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Yeah, that's huge. I wondered if if I could bring Halima in on this point, because it is so deeply entrenched and cyclical and intersectional between personally mediated acts through individuals, systems within which they operate, and institutions within which those sort of wider structural systems operate, like in colonial legacies. Halima, you've been doing the action bit for a really, really long time. So I'd just love to hear from you on, on this point of Disentanglement entanglement and knowing where to start.
3: Great, thank you. Um, really lovely to be here with you. I think we have to start with this notion that When we are discussing racism, we're not actually talking about individual acts of racism. Yes, individual actions can um, exacerbate, make worse a situation. But on the whole, when we're looking at poorer outcomes on the health levels, at the population level, it is not a single individual that's responsible for Black maternal health figures in this country. It is a system that's producing that outcome. So I think we need to start with the notion that it's indirect racism which then is replicated and reinforced and passed on to the system so much that an individual that's experiencing health treatment and outcome as a user is then impacted. It's an indirect act of racism that is leading to poorer outcomes for racialized groups. Now, of course, this is not a new notion. If we go back to Stephen Lawrence's murder and the subsequent Macpherson inquiry, Macpherson focused our minds on institutional indirect racism and how it was so important in explaining actually not, not just the direct act of racist murder, but the subsequent handling of the police investigation that was very institutionally uh, badly handled, right? Um, and Macpherson did set out the notion of indirect racism and how that then institutionally manifests itself to produce outcomes at a population level. One of the questions I get asked regularly is, sounds so complex, but is there one thing that you you could see being done that might change things for racialized minorities in this country so that they're not suffering from poorer outcomes from the health system that's publicly funded from their own tax as well. And I always go back to the point around uh, maternal health or a crisis in the system that we're currently aware of, Black maternal health, for example. If we know that is a crisis, start with what needs to be done to reverse that, and then the whole system can follow.
1: I mean, one of the things that always strikes me when I think about acting on racism, one of the challenges for me always feels that we respond to the crisis as if it's about an individual, when part of responding to that crisis needs to be about responding to sort of those structural inequities. Health systems struggle, they struggle to see how those things fit together. If the crisis is around, let's say four times more, and we had the young activists who sort of launched that campaign uh, around maternal deaths in the UK on our first series of our podcast, and thinking about responding to that crisis. One of the things I, I'm always drawn to is the fact that minoritized bodies, women live in, in conditions that are not conducive to good health. And how, how much of addressing that crisis is a part of what we're doing to respond to the... Do you see what I'm I'm trying to say?
3: Yes. So obviously the NHS is part of an ecosystem of a public health system that needs to be responding to that wider issue. So for example, at the beginning of COVID, I think there was a lot of soul searching around why particular groups of minorities were disproportionately impacted. And of of course, those of us who were disproportionately impacted actually knew why. We were probably (laughs) living in um, the inner cities, breathing air... Quality that is dangerous and toxic, and also uh, living in households that were multi-generational and also with um, wage earners in the households that were employed in the gig economy, for example. So th- these are environmental mm-hmm. structural reasons for why racialized bodies are more precarious in any situation. But on top of that, if you look at the the first uh doctors that died in the NHS these were not socioeconomically working class mm-hmm. minoritized bodies these were middle class racialized bodies within the NHS system so we 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 talked a little bit about how racialized bodies were underprotected in terms of PPE and their rights in the workplace it's about whether we have the confidence to actually say Perhaps today doesn't feel right for me to come in because actually I might end up um, sharing a room with my multi-generational family and therefore I need to protect myself.
0: You've both alluded to the distinction between interpersonal racism, between individual people who are racists and the kind of horror and discomfort with that, and then a system and, and an intersectional system as well. When you try and change the system where do you encounter the resistance? Where are the, the vested interests that need to keep things the same? Is it just inertia? Or do you then encounter individual interpersonal racism where people are like, nah, I don't like to see these changes occurring for these reasons? Dylan, can we start with you? It's
2: easy to say most people don't like to be called racist. So that that's obvious. But But also, Institutions and systems don't like to be called racist as well, and and Helene mentioned the McPherson report that was very controversial at the time. The police system being institutionally racist, you know, with the, there are similar things to climate change arguments to to many other industries. There are people who are advantaged by the current system, and there are people who are disadvantaged. If we look at indigenous populations, who um, you know have can, can may live in very difficult conditions. And, and that's due to extractivism, to mining companies, to the polluted um, environments that they live in. People get advantage, get profits from those industries, and certain people uh, are facing the consequences. And, and those are different people, obviously, um, who, who benefits from air pollution in, in the UK or elsewhere. There are certain industries who benefit Air pollution is a byproduct of of the profits that people are making. There is resistance to change anyway, but there are people who are actively resisting, and there are people around the world who are benefiting from racist structures.
0: It's sort of requiring you almost to to to, to point a finger at certain certain places and things in a, in a way that's 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 very difficult.
3: What has climate change and racism got in common? And I think there is one apart from the harm, of course. The other thing that it's got in common is guilt. So often people who deny climate change are, uh, are guilty because of their own actions, whether systemically or individually over the years. Guilt is incredibly inhibitive. It paralyzes you. So it's better to just deny that it's happening. Same as racism, right? Better to deny that we live uh, in a society that still has prevalent racism than to confront it. I think there's a piece around raising our public awareness of the the issues that confront us and challenge us. Because if you can't name it, recognize it, then how on earth can we teach our children that this is still a, a societal issue at large? But it is not just about direct acts of racism. I'll give you an example When I took my uh, 86-year-old father for a two-year process where he was receiving cancer treatment for his very terrible situation, he he has now passed away. It took an entire family of siblings to make sure he just got the right treatment to the point when he was actually signed off for end-of-life palliative care. the the doctor at the particular hospital, who was terribly caring and actually very committed to her job, had managed to sign a consent form for end of life for no resuscitation without the family's consent. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it because her experience of British Bangladeshi patients coming in who didn't speak English was that it was probably... The right thing for them and just assume that consent wasn't required and when we then challenged it she then actually pointed us to the google guidance on what end of life no resuscitation rules were and i was able to say very politely oh i I know how to google what i'm questioning is your medical ethics how were you able to sign off the consent without the family's consent it's an ethical question i'm raising it's that assumption of treating minorities for years and years and years and actually not being self-aware of your own actions and your own professionalism within a system that's already inaccessible for many minoritized individuals so I think it starts with naming the problem, recognizing it, not denying it, and also making sure that when our government denies that there's a problem of racism in this country, that all of us are aware that what the implication is for denying that racism still exists in this country, because that means all the work post Stephen Lawrence's generation that has been done to raise awareness is then undone. When we hear slogans like, we may be living in a post-racial society, I'd love that. I'd love it if we were. But there's an epistemic justice and an injustice done to those of us who are still suffering as racialized minorities when we deny racism. But it's very dangerous because it means those of us who are working on the front line, trying to resolve health inequities, then we have a harder job. And this was on the back of Black Lives Matter when we were all leaning in to actually make sure that something like that never happens ever again in Britain or anywhere else. Um, So that's very dangerous. It's gaslighting, isn't it? That was a very difficult moment. But quite reassuringly, I mean, even the most conservative... Of uh, medical associations to the most radical of associations, that are the trade unions, actually came together to ally and align on on this fact and pushed back on that central message that was coming from the very top of our uh, country.
2: We talk about some of these issues as being, you know, byproduct or not deliberate actions, but there are deliberate actions as well. And an example from the UK is the hostile environment towards migrants. This government policy to restrict access migrants and to make it a difficult place to live and this has consequences for the health system there's uh, you know the nhs is famously free at the point of care but it isn't for everyone and migrants are charged and some and charged for secondary care they're charged at a higher rate than uh, nationals of the country which has consequences that people don't go to see their doctor people delay going to see their doctor they go with worse conditions and this is you know also for children i work in child health and we did some work on undocumented migrant children who have to pay to go to see a doctor in secondary care the government paints migration as a big problem for the uk um They don't talk about the advantages of migration, the advantages purely in an economic sense to the economy of the UK, the advantages of migrants coming in. But this has real consequences. It has consequences for those people, for other people, for minoritized groups in the UK. I took my son to um, the doctor for some allergy testing. And afterwards, I received a letter. The letter was kind of asking, should I pay the migrant charge? And it was a very odd thing. It, It wasn't my... I'm a British national, my son is born in this country, as a British national, we shouldn't have paid the charge. But I think it was purely based on my name that we got this letter and it, and it wasn't even telling me to pay, it was mm-hmm. sort of questioning, should I be paying? The whole system is set up to target migrants, but it has this knock-on effect on all minoritized communities in, in the UK.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I'm really glad you brought that up because uh, it is i think one of the hardest things i moved i moved to the uk in 2007 or you know formally i guess 2010 when i started my phd and to sort of watch like a very i've watched the decline of the narrative around migration into like a much more and more like openly blatant racist narrative i'm constantly going for interviews and biometric cards and 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 i know that my pathway is made easier by the, by two things, by class, because I speak a certain way. I've been educated in a certain way. My application is linked to very fancy schools. Um, and, and also by my name, Dylan, like Rochelle Burgess is basically English plus French equals she must be white. So there's no, there's no, nobody is, is harassing me or chasing me around in that, same way until I'm visibly in front of them and so you really see the sort of the the ways in which those those deeply problematic racist assumptions which are very very old and the hostile environment is very very old sort of going back to also the 1700s 1800s these policies around um who is a foreign British national who is a British national and like the sort of a hierarchy in those Passports that they issue, and those kinds of things. We can't say the thing we want to say that some groups of migrants are okay. Sort of the way processes, new processes, embracing processes, are created for some types of migrant bodies and not other types of migrant bodies.
3: I I was going to say. I was going to say that Dylan, if, for example, you, um, if there was a white South African migrant, or actually a white Australian they are never really asked about whether they should be paying for NHS prescriptions or whether they should be paying big, big. So it's not just the migrant status, it's the racialized migrant status. So that then plays into who is a good migrant worthy of actually coming to uh, Britain and who isn't, right? So even beyond the migrant status, we apply uh, racial tropes around who is acceptable and who isn't. I also think there's the inertia piece as well. So when you speak to my well-meaning friends, who I now share a lot of time with, they will say, but the NHS is broken. It's so broken. Everybody is suffering. My mother in the suburbs of the Chilterns cannot get a health appointment. Uh, She can't get a doctor's appointment. And it is true that the health system is broken, but minorities are then experiencing worse outcomes, even in a broken system. So yes, the NHS systems is universal, but certain certain uh, minoritized bodies are experiencing health treatment differently. At least with COVID, one thing was quite clear, that we didn't experience COVID in the same way, and some of us were better protected due to uh, class, first and foremost, but also whether we were racialized or not.
0: Yeah. It's very interesting that you both, all three of you have mentioned the very, very long historical context of this in terms of the scale of the problem. That question that I sort of almost felt a bit embarrassed to ask at the beginning, like racism, how big a problem is it? It It is at the core of all of global health inequality, all of health inequality, of poverty, you could make the case that it's one of the biggest health problems in the world, and that health and health and racism are very, very deeply um, connected. So I I wanted to ask, the extent to which health professionals and healthcare systems offer a part of a solution? Is there a possibility that that changes in public health and in, in clinical medicine could have implications for Wider society should healthcare professionals be trying to lead in this area?
2: Well, yeah, yeah, and I, I, I think I didn't answer your question at the start about how big the problem is. It's it's a difficult question to answer because you can look at it in terms of individual interactions. You can look at it in terms of. Differences in life expectancy, differences in mortality rate. We mentioned maternal mortality, COVID nineteen differences by uh, ethnic group. Differences in life expectancy. Indigenous populations in Australia, New Zealand have about a ten year lower life expectancy than uh, the the white populations. Um, but I I think you know as we've been discussing, racism goes much further, and it goes back into the histories of countries it goes to the colonial histories the slave trade and it's implicated into some of the worst atrocities that we've seen throughout humanity Uh, wars conflicts genocide i think it is one of the biggest things that we need to address and i always advocate within a health field for it to be up there with uh, the other big determinants of health, if we look at socioeconomic causes, climate change, environment, I think we should consider racism up amongst those other determinants. Um, and in terms of what the health professionals should do, I think we have to be part of the conversation. This isn't something that we can just say it's for others to fix. Health professionals have a role to advocate to... to um, and I say this in in the sense that I know that it's difficult. I know sy- systemic change in a society is is of course, a, a massive thing. And an individual person, it's difficult for that person to make that change. But there are many routes to making change. You can work within an organization, activist groups, NGOs, within your your unions, for example, and some of the kind of civil rights movements that have been successful throughout history have been collectives of people and health professionals are powerful and I think the individual person forgets that they have a certain authority they have knowledge they have a standing society and those people coming together are very powerful and a very powerful force for change.
3: I think um, the medical practitioners are in, in a hugely influential role because we trust you with our health when we're at our most vulnerable and then the level of trust it takes to place um uh what our support needs are in your hands is incredibly important so I, th- I think that's a good starting point because i think fundamentally if we can build that trust and confidence that actually health practitioners will ultimately you know uh, take care of us when we're at our worst and our most vulnerable I think that is a healthy place to start. So what what does that mean that the health system has to do, even when uh, the government at the highest level in this country doesn't have an anti-racist strategy, for example, at the prime minister's office? So in this country, we don't have an anti-racist strategy that is about reducing uh, disparities across the nation. So in the absence of that, I think there are certain institutions and certain sectors like health and criminal justice system that can do more in order to cushion the impact of racism on our racialized communities. I think health professionals can start with just looking at the numbers, right? If there is a racial disparity or disparity in health outcomes for racialized groups within the particular city or the um, area that you are responsible for. What is a clear commitment to reduce that disparity? It's as simple as that. If we only stayed with the idea that health systems in this country are universal, free at the point of delivery, I think we'll miss a trick because we do know in order to drive better outcomes we have to reach different groups differently so it's not that minority groups are hard to reach we have to see it as our responsibility to reach different groups differently if this was a commercial broadcaster we wouldn't be thinking oh those those audiences are hard to reach we'll just forget about them instead they will be thinking how do we reach each and every bit of our audience within our demographic. And ultimately, I think the leadership has to come from the very top because the health system is probably... The NHS is our most proudest asset in this country. And, and to then make sure that that system is responding in all its busyness to the diverse needs of our communities is what leadership needs to commit to doing. And I believe that in the health system and in the criminal justice system, and also with the Met Police in London, if those three sectors were to think about a political, political commitment to reducing disparities on racial grounds, we would make inroads, Right maybe the Prime Minister's office will then follow.
0: It does feel like you're making a very good case that whether you're in public health or whether you're in healthcare in general, um, you have a disproportionate uh, responsibility to push against the racist structures and individuals.
3: And a positive duty of care as health professionals to do good that other professions possibly don't have.
1: I really want to also hold what Delan was saying about the importance of sort of like community work i mean you're saying it and not, and not saying it but i always associate ngos with community work and activism and professionalization of activism because that is an outgrowth of citizens visions of there being a problem that needs addressing and you know trade unions and these historical movements against institutional racism have always simultaneously been driven by that bottom-up movement and so they're both; they sort of are needed in dialogue, aren't they? Anyway, um, our final question that that I want to ask is about this idea of disruption. And I think both of you are very active disruptors, uh, and we're really interested in in understanding disruption, how it happens, and and thinking alongside it. So not just in public health, but everywhere. And so we always ask our guests about uh, a piece of art or music or poetry or experience that they've had in in their life that has disrupted their perspective and uh it would be great if we could hear uh from each of you about that delon we could start with you
2: so i I was thinking about this and i think it i i I get disrupted quite often (laughs) by by things um you, you mentioned at the start a project envisioning environmental equity and within that project we had young people produce films produce comics um and around climate change and racial injustice. These people in Brazil, Uganda, the Philippines, we've had children, we've had young people, we've had people creating films or artwork, talking about the issues that they face, and they're all disruptive. They all challenge things in different ways. There was uh, the International Child Health Group just now has produced something where uh, asylum-seeking children have drawn pictures about their journeys and sort of narrated over to this animation. And it's, it's very challenging for us people, part of this work, but hopefully it it challenges others, the people who make decisions as well. So presenting their stories and just the power of the narrative is is so important.
1: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Khalima, over to you.
3: Recently, I attended um, an exhibition at the Wellcome Trust. I think it's still on called Milk and. When they invited me to uh, take a look at the exhibition and speak, I thought, milk, milk, have they asked me to speak about it because milk is white? And so I will talk to the concept of milk being white. So I went in, um, not quite sure what to expect was an amazing exhibition because it was looking at the process of extraction of milk from a cow, literally a cow, and the whole process of mechanization and scaling up and what implications that has on um, obviously the the cow to begin with, but the way in which we extract from you know other animals in in our lives and our planet, and how that process then is linked to consumption and links to colonialism and trade in the past. That has been very extractive. So I thought I was seeing what was an exhibition on milk, but it actually caused me to think um, a lot around the disruptive nature of how we've been led to believe that scaled-up processes of production in the past is beneficial, when in fact this might be the process that will lead our planet to implode. So it's very... It was very disruptive in in very quiet ways.
0: Oh, that's so good. Thank you. That was really insightful and inspiring and optimistic and sort of terrifying all at the same time. So, thank you both. You did a beautiful job on that. Thanks for inviting
3: me. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to Public Health Disrupted. This episode was presented by me, Rochelle Burgess, and Zan Van Telleken, produced by UCL Health of the Public and edited by Annabelle Buckland at Decibel Creative. Our huge thanks again to today's guests, Dellen Kumar and Halima Begum.
0: If you'd like to know more about Dellen's work, you can go to djdevakumar.com and that web address is in our show notes. And if you want to hear more of these fascinating discussions from UCL Health of the Public, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. Come and discover more online and keep up with the school's latest news, events and research. Just Google UCL Health of the Public. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities
3: that are open to everyone.